Welcome to the Mag Debrief podcast. Uh, we've got a special treat for you this episode because it's Christmas. We have a guest and that guest is Amy Forrester, Director of Pastoral Care for Key Stage 4 at Cockermouth School in Cumbria and an all-round Tez legend. Hello, Amy. Hiya. Um, you have the good fortune of being on with our normal uh, speakers in the form of Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hi there. And this episode is all dedicated to one feature in the magazine, which is our Tez Person of the Year. So let's get started. So should we just get into the number one straight away? Should we reveal it at the start? Should we reveal it at the end? What do we think? Oh, let's, let's, on. let's go for it. Let's, let's do it. Oh, oh. <laughs> contrast, contrast. Are you going to, you have to decide who vote, Amy. Do we start or finish with the Person of the Year? Oh, uh... I think start. Start. Okay. Well, I'll All give right. you some context. So for the past four years, Tez have looked at the education sector over the part, previous 12 months and decided who has had the biggest impact or the biggest influence over it. Uh, we get together as Tez editors and we come up with a shortlist. And out of that shortlist, we select a number one. So we have a shortlist of 10. This year, I think it was the first year we've ever had a unanimous verdict. And I'm happy to reveal that the person, test person of the year is you. Not you, Amy. Well, actually, it is you, Amy, in a yeah. way. It's you as in a teaching profession. And not just a teaching profession, actually, a school staff, because we've got to uh, remember that this isn't just about teachers or leaders. It's about all the people who are, who are part of that, too. Um, Dan actually wrote the, the, the write-up for this. It was, I think it was even Dan's initial suggestion. So, Dan, do you want to talk us through your thinking behind putting teachers forward or school staff forward mm. and, and why why we've chosen them? Yeah, well, when we obviously were sort of trying to come up with ideas for it, it, it seemed sort of churlish idea that one person more than anyone else this year of, of all years would sort of stand above everyone else. And you, and you realise, well, actually, every person working in the school this year has been through something quite extraordinary. You know, and I think we've all almost adjusted so well to it in a way that you, you don't realise like how much everyone's been through in a school. You know, the, the difference is name you tell us, I'm sure, and talk a little bit about that for us. But it just seemed like I just sort of thought, almost on the top of my head, I just thought, well, surely we just have to sort of say it's everyone because everyone's done something out totally out of the ordinary, whether that's a teaching, you know, adapting to online learning or teaching in these bubbles or teaching in these distance classrooms or school support stuff going in and putting tape all over the floor and coming up with rotor plans and then changing them, then changing them again. Every head's getting a Friday night email from the DfE and, you know, losing their weekend, but doing what they have to do. I just think you have to recognize that. We have to sort of put that forward and say, you know, this year, more than ever, everyone in education has done something extraordinary. And for all the sort of griping that you see in, the, in certain elements of, of society, they're, they're woefully incorrect. And, and actually what's been achieved this year is, is remarkable and it needs to be shouted about and, and celebrated because, again, it's such a tough year. It, it may not, it's not nothing you're going to get a, a bigger check at the end of the month or anything, but I think it's important that, you know, we, we celebrate that. How, I mean... Amy, how, how long have you been in the, in the teaching profession and where does this rank in terms of difficulty of, in, in so many ways, you're in pastoral, but you're also teaching English. I mean, in terms of teaching in the classroom, but in terms of pastoral, how does this rank in, in, in your, you know, the hardship hierarchy? Don't say that when you're drunk. Um, well, I've been teaching 11 years now um, and by by a huge amount, this is the hardest it has ever been in schools. Absolutely. It's harder than um, 
training. I don't know how student teachers are dealing with it. I don't know how NQTs are dealing with it. To do your training in amongst all of this is, um, you know, hats off to them because it, that's hard enough as it is. Um, in terms of the challenges that teachers face, that schools face, that pastoral care faces, um, it has never, ever been this difficult. Um, and the fact that we are still standing at this point in the in the academic year um, shouldn't be as much of a surprise as it is, frankly. Um, I don't think it could be any more difficult if it tried. And how, how in, in, in that context, I mean, the press have not been kind um, to teachers and there's been this quite bizarre divergence from the, the narrative around NHS frontline workers and teachers that, that they're seen as distinct, that one is doing all they can and, and, and one is in, in the teaching profession is coming under so much attack. I mean, do you have any idea of why that is firstly and, and how does it feel to be on the end of that? Um, I think it sort of taps into that age-old um, criticism that stems back to the school holidays um, and the, the perception that teachers get a lot of time off and that it's only a, you know, a nine till three job. Um, and the fact that most people went to school, they feel like they're qualified to comment on that when, in fact, you know, if you compare that with nurses, um, not many people have any direct experience of that. Um, and so I think that that unifying thing um, in amongst people is what leads to the increased criticism in schools. Everyone feels like they um, should have their opinion is informed um, when in fact it's normally quite the opposite. Um, so I can see where it comes from and I can see why if you read just what was in the press, it would be easy to feel that teachers weren't doing much or we had a lot of time off. If you took 30 seconds to learn about our reality, you'd know you couldn't be more wrong if you tried. Um, we we're on the receiving end of so much criticism at the moment. Um, and what you've got are teams of people working day and night to keep other people's kids safe in school um, and often putting themselves on the front line of that. Um, you know, none of us came into teaching expecting to have to put um, our health on the line. Um, you know, that that may be slightly different with, with you know, the NHS and nurses. But I'm sure nobody expected a pandemic. Um, teaching staff are doing that um, and they're doing that night and day and they're working incredible hours to make sure that other people's kids get a really good education because that's all we want out of it. This pandemic isn't their fault. They didn't ask for this. Um, and everyone I know is doing everything they can to make sure they're unaffected by it. Has it, um, I mean, we'll, we try and not talk about your school in particular, but in general, from what you see on social media, do you think the message has Damage, the message put out by the mainstream media has damaged relationships between parents and schools? Or do you think parents see the reality every day and, and do appreciate teachers? Um, I think that a lot of, possibly now more than ever, parents are seeing more and more what we do. Um, and so there's a real positive there and they're grateful for the fact that we're keeping their kids safe. Um, you know, a lot of parents are rightly worried about sending their kid into what feels like, you know, some sort of COVID factory um, when you're used to not being around other people and suddenly they can be around hundreds of other people. That involves putting a lot of trust into school staff um, and that's opened up a lot of opportunities for parents to to engage with us and to um, to see what we do in a more positive way. I think a lot of the stuff in the press, though, is is making where parents aren't supportive of schools, it's it's giving them more of an excuse not to be. Um, and actually, I think that's quite dangerous because ultimately the only thing that suffers when people don't support schools is kids. 
um, and their learning and their education that, you know, we're all here to do that and we all want to to do the best we can with it. Um, and the, those those headlines do impact on that in a small minority of cases. And Gwanya, you've been on on Sky and some other you know, media platforms speaking up for teachers. And I, I get the sense that the line of questioning is quite more accusatory than it would be normally for for hospital staff, say. I mean, how have you found that relationship and being, you know, being put on the spot like that? Is it is it frustrating as an ex-teacher yourself? Do you know, do you think you've had any success in changing the narrative? I think I spend a lot of time thinking about what are the misconceptions that people have about the, the rule changes or things that have been introduced. And I, I, I live my life reading Twitter and Facebook and reading of people's reactions and not just teachers' reactions, but different parent groups. Can we just say not your whole life? Because Gronya does have a work-life balance at Tess. We, we <laughs> I mean, she's definitely not doing this podcast while on her holiday. Um, no, she's not in school anymore. And I talk to people at the school gate and uh, I've got lots of friends that aren't teachers who I still keep in contact with out the goodness of my heart. And, you know, I, I hear things from people and they think things like, oh, this this Friday that we were allowed to do as inset was a day off and that that day means that um, we're now not going to have to self-isolate over Christmas. Like That doesn't mean that at all. That's not what an inset day is. And, you know, when I do get the opportunity to speak on a big platform about what's happening with teachers, I do try my hardest to always try and put across what the reality is and let people know that it's not what's been spun or it's not just the headline. Like there's a lot more details, a lot more nuance to it. I think the key thing about the whole, I mean, this will, this will locate this uh, podcast in a particular time, but the whole thing that's going on in Greenwich at the moment is that there's a lot of people talking for teachers in a policy sense, but there's not a lot of people talking about teachers, about the reality of it, about what it feels like to be ahead in Greenwich at the moment, or what it feels like to be a teacher who may have a vulnerable relative or maybe vulnerable themselves in a classroom with 30 kids. It, at that point, it doesn't really matter how much transmission actually occurs in that particular school. The fear is enough, you know, to imagine going to work every day and being put under that, that, that fear. And I guess, you know, Amy, you're 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 young, so you probably uh, don't don't have the fear yourself. But you know, some of your colleagues, perhaps, and you know, some of the people you know might might go to work every day with that real fear. Oh, absolutely. And we, you know, we've got staff who are vulnerable and who are worried and who are scared. Um, and the fact that they are still turning up every day, um, despite that, is is a huge achievement for them. Um, but you're absolutely right that it's we are humans at the end of the day. Um, and we're being asked to do things that we would not normally be asked to do. That isn't to say no one else is. Um, it's it's just saying, you know, we are being asked to expose ourselves to transmission. Um, and when there's, you know, bickering and infighting and with some sort of political punch bag in the press, um, that just doesn't help the operational running of a school. Like we are literally, we're plugging gaps left, right and centre. That's, that's most of our jobs at the moment is a gap plugger. Um, and that everything else that is going on is just noise, but it's noise that makes that worse. And I, I cannot imagine what it must be like to be a head or a school leader in Greenwich, like you say, and to have so much change and alteration and just, you know, one minute this is happening, the next minute something else is happening. It it just makes the core business of teaching and learning so much harder to achieve. I think that's the key, isn't it? I mean, 
um, you've written for us on this in the past and we've had many other people have come at it from different angles, which is consistency and schools there to be a stable part in a lot of kids' lives who don't have stability. And what we've had with the pandemic, and I guess you can forgive the uncertainty at the start, but since then we've had so much flip-flopping of policy, you know, one thing's there, the other thing's not. We're going to go and talk about Marcus Rashford and what he's done uh, a bit later, but there seems to be this this, this <laughs> almost willful destabilizing effect on schools where... <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I don't want to interject, but it's, it's interesting that you look at the narrative this year at schools and up until around August time, I think teachers were being quite, obviously quite rightly, put in high regard. You know, everyone on Twitter saying, oh my God, I realize how much teachers did and oh, they should be paid a million pounds a month and there were celebrities coming out to say how wonderful teachers are. And then after the results thing, and maybe this is me being a bit cynical, but on how badly that went for the government, it's felt like there's been, they've been slowly seeding this kind of, let's put schools on the back foot, let's cause disruption, let's get, our, let's get certain parts of the media to push our line hard against schools. And that's led to the situation now where schools, whereas, whereas once they were being held up earlier in the year by most people are sort of doing an amazing job. There's now this kind of debate about, oh, they should just be back in school. They should be teaching. Oh, it's not that hard what they're doing. And it's like, as we've just been talking about, there's so much difficulty and concern and worry and the rates are rising massively in the Southeast. And yet teachers are being told, no, you have to go in and you you have to do this and you you can't close your schools even though rates are rising and all this kind of stuff. And it feels almost a little bit deliberate, like let's muddy the water so that we can remove this halo that teachers have built up because we were too much on the back foot and we need to regain some control in the argument. And that's causing policy decisions to be made that are not in the best interest. They're just about, we have to stand firm. That feels like what's happening a little bit. Yeah, and I think people, there was this, uh, we put it in the the piece that there was this expectation of normality from September that was never ever going to be a reality. Like, things are going to get back to normal. And there was a lot of messaging around that. And it wasn't normal. And it isn't mm. normal. And it won't be in January. I mean, looking ahead, Amy, I mean, is there, you know, if you're a head teacher or a teacher sitting down this Christmas, I mean, you're not thinking you're going to come back to January and refresh, you know? No, we, in all honesty, I January is my biggest worry now because we know that there's going to be a lot of mixing over the break. Um, we know that kids are going to come back having ex- been exposed to all kinds of you know potential infections of covid and that's going to show itself straight away in school um and it's going to be it potentially a breeding ground um and unless something's done nationally to make sure that there's some sort of um testing system i don't know how we avoid that i think what we've seen so far is is going to be nothing compared to what January is going to look like. Um, and I'm anticipating carnage, I have to say. Not that I'm a pessimist or anything, um, but that's what I'm anticipating. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, even with the greatest will in the world with the vaccine programme, we're, we're not going to be, you know, I've heard whispers of Easter, but, you know, that's a, another term for teachers of living through, you know, this, this sort of <laughs> recurring nightmare, if you like, if we don't want to be too extreme about it and what's this going to mean for exams so if we don't go back in January and we don't have teachers back in January because so many people are self-isolating can we really push ahead with the plan that we've got at the moment I think uh I mean (laughs) I think the things have changed so much over the past nine months that I think we're going to have quite a few more turns along the way is that putting it uh, euphemistically enough probably I think it probably (laughs) is but I think it's going to be uh it's going to be tricky I think but I think the point here is, I think, as you've heard from Amy saying, is that there's no one more deserving than teachers and school staff this year for that number one spot. 
Should we go and have a look at the uh, the other the other nine shortlisted entries? Dan, let's start with you. Well, the other person I'm going to talk about a little bit is is Marcus Rashford, who we touched on briefly, and his sort of amazing campaigning to on free school meals this year. And what I there are many things you talk about about the way he did that and then what he achieved. But the thing I would mention was what he so he was so good at was he never ever changed his position and he let all the kind of flack that he got and all the different attacks they tried and what he was doing bizarrely, you know, he just kept saying kids shouldn't be going hungry. It's never their fault. And that's kind of all he just kept saying over and over again. And then obviously from that, he was saying, we need to make sure they're fed and we need to uh, U-turn and we need to put more funding in and whatever, they, whatever tax he got and they accused him of virtue signaling and they tried to say it's too difficult on parents are at fault and all this kind of nonsense. He just said, kids shouldn't go hungry. It's not their fault. You know, they're never to blame. And he knew from what he spoke and he was highly successful, but he was sort of modest with it and he never rose to any things. And and it was just so sort of wonderful to see this young person, let alone a multimillionaire sports star who, you know, could choose to ignore it or could act in a certain way or whatever. He just had this very defined, clear message. And, and in a world that's so open to sort of people using, you know, what's it called, fake news and all these things, he just had this one line that just worked. And it didn't matter what they said, he just kept going with it. And it was so nice to see that and actually the impact that had. And it was hard not to. Whatever football, I think I think if the football crowds had been in the stadiums, every, every team would have been cheering his name during that little period, irrespective of who they supported. I think there was that level of cut through that he just, everyone was like, yeah, you know, kids shouldn't go hungry during holidays. It's not their fault. I think mean, that's the Vic Goddard um, from educating Essex fame, but almost also just a thoroughly decent and very, very good head. Uh, he put on Twitter that he, Rashford had the cut through that the heads weren't able to do. He gave them the voice they needed. And mm. I think that's why he's there in this this list is not only did he do the best for the kids, but he 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 was a voice for teachers. A bit like we were saying before, where was the voice for... Where was the voice for the the human side of this, not the policy side? And I think Marcus Rashford was, was there for that. Um, but I think as as well, you know, he didn't ever write. He was a good model for peoples. He never rose to the, you know, even in the face of people tweeting absolute horror at him, he would just sort of nonchalantly just be very nice to them. And it was such a such a nice thing to see. Mm. Um. Could you talk maybe, Amy, about the impact he might have had on your school? I mean, not in specifics, but did it make things easier for you? I think just the fact that people are talking about it and people know that it's that is an issue and that some children do go hungry and that that is not their fault. That allows us to to talk about it more, especially when it's a current event and it that helps us take away the stigma and it takes away the shame of of that some parents might feel if they're not in a position to provide for their kids. Um, and that's really what we need. We need them to be able to ask for help or, you know, be entitled to some help from the government. Um, and the fact that that happened um, is wonderful because kids kids won't go hungry um, now and, and they could have done previously. Um, so it, it's that part of it. It's the fact that it was it was a national talking point um, that that really changed things, especially from somebody so influential that all the kids look up to. And the fact that he opened up about his own backstory and was talking about his background, it made a lot of kids feel like they can see somebody like them. And that that makes a huge difference to kids when they're um, living through disadvantage. Mm. Well, there's Marcus Rashford, who's part of our shortlist. So for the second one, I mean, we're going to go slightly lighter here, aren't we, Gronya? I mean... This, there's no less impact from this person that you're going to talk about, but this is quite fun. 
This is really fun. So another person on our list is Alana Pignatello, and she was a makeup artistry artistry lecturer. She was a makeup artistry lecturer, and she had to move all of her lessons onto online learning. And when you're teaching makeup, that's quite difficult. And Alana did such an amazing job and she made some really funny videos. Do look them up. And she transformed herself into different celebrities, including the Queen, Boris Johnson, Lewis Cabaldi. And it's it's just brilliant. And, you know, we've got so many different subjects that don't really lend themselves to online learning. You know, I'm, I saw myself with poor old Pat, my, my long-suffering PE teacher husband, trying to teach PE over online learning. That's not easy. And was he not like a Joe Wicks in the making? He's he's slagging off Pat again every week. <laughs> Poor Pat. And um, it's it's difficult. It's really really difficult. Drama teachers, art teachers, people had to adapt to teach their subject online when it's really not a subject that you'd expect to be be taught over the internet. So Alana stands for all of those teachers. And I thought she was well deserved on our our list. Yeah, I think she stood for for us, for the creativity, the ingenuity, mm. the never say never attitude of teachers that they just got on with the job. And, you know, there's so many examples of that around the country that, you know, suddenly, oh, yeah, you could just teach from home. I mean, I don't know about many schools, but most of the schools I've gone into still have a lot of paper around. You know, there's, there's <laughs> this it wasn't an easy thing to transition to. And yet within a very short period of time, we had an ed tech explosion, if you like. And teachers retrain themselves to do things and change their delivery methods. And, you know, this was like asking, you know, how many people in their job could suddenly completely change the way they did it? I mean, for us as journalists, we were writing on a MS word in an office, then we we're writing on MS word in our house. I mean, it wasn't a great departure from our daily routine other than, you know, the, those who go to conferences, but this was teachers doing something completely different. And, um, yeah, and it was fun. You know, Lewis Capaldi doesn't just tweet anybody, right? <laughs> and you've you've written for us about makeup, Amy. So was she particularly inspired? You know, is she someone who you thought, wow, that I could learn something from her? Oh, absolutely. Um, and her ingenuity to take what she can do um, so well and with such skill and to do it like that, it, it you know something that I'm particularly interested in and seeing somebody um, show off what they can do. I thought, well, do you know what? If she can do that, I can probably teach a lesson or two online as well. <laughs> do a bit of Romeo and Juliet on Zoom. Yeah, give it a bit of Shakespeare. <laughs> Get Channel your inner Ian McKellen. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's brimming away inside of me, as you can tell. <laughs> so... Let's go to number three. I think we're going to come to you for this, Amy, and you've got a special mention for the teachers of Oak Academy. I have. So um, Oak Academy have have done um, God's own work, in my own words. Um, they have stepped up, and a lot of them stepped up as the pandemic was literally unfolding um, and took time out of their own chaotic, mad lives to record lessons for other teachers to use so that they don't have to. That in itself should be some sort of national service award because um, so many schools have used their resources. And you see that, like, you know, I think it was one of the, I don't know, I think it was one of the teacher tap ones. Um, we're talking about the numbers of schools that have used it. And it's through the roof, absolutely through the roof. 
Um, and I know myself, um, when uh, one of our bubbles burst, I there was some classes where I thought, I, you know, I need to be able to give them something that they can watch. But we'd only had partial bursts. So I had half of them in, half of them at home. Um, not all of them with devices. They couldn't be, we couldn't do anything live. Um, but I was able to use Oak like in the in the flash of a moment, it was just there. And we, you know, we've mapped our curriculum against it um, because it's so good so that we can switch on an instant if we need to. Um, and to do that on such a national scale and to have a such an effective, efficient, well-delivered, robust plan B for schools, um, my God, is it something phenomenal. And I think it's important at this point to note that Again, we're going to move away from the policy decisions around Oak, which are more controversial and how that came into being and, and you know where it may end up and focus here on the teachers. And this is teachers sharing for teachers. And this is teachers who've gone out of their way, like you say, Amy, to, to create resources. And right, right from the bottom to the top, I mean, David Thomas, who is the curriculum um, lead over there, and he's done some phenomenal work in, in putting this together. And yeah, they've faced a lot of criticism where people saying, well, why Oak? Well, you know, it's something I've chatted to them about and it's like, well, they're the ones who did it. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, there is some great stuff out there and they've, they've never said don't use that other stuff. But I think for those teachers who are part of it, I think, you know, the only thing we can give them is is a, you know, a big thank you, I think, to say thank you for doing that. Yeah, as a, as a parent, they saved me in the summer. When the Oak lessons came online, everything just became so much easier. It was fantastic. And, you know, the girls' school recommended that we use it and it was, they really enjoyed it. They loved their teachers. They they really engaged with it and it was such high quality. And I think it's very difficult to expect schools, what would be the point of loads of schools all doing that themselves? It was so good just to have one place. You didn't need to log in. Everything was there. Everything was sequential. It was great. And so the last one we're going to focus in on is uh, the EYFS Rebels. And let me explain this because, you know, there isn't a band of EYFS professionals barricading number 10, although I'm sure they would like to, the, the sort of treatment they've had over the past couple of years. But what we looked at here was the fact that this year, lots of stuff has come to a head in the early years. Um, there's been sporadic bursts of, of, of defiance, if you like, or criticism of policies that have been rolled out in the early years that that haven't um, haven't that haven't been properly, I guess, discussed with the sector itself. And as we've seen over the last decade, where you know we've put more and more emphasis on what happens in that EYFS sector, you know, this is what determines GCSE grades. This is this is the moment we can have the most impact. There's that hasn't been coupled all. You know, it, a lot of the time with an understanding of what happens. No one's talking to them. There's this view that it's childcare and like everyone just plays and the teacher sits there somewhere with a coffee. And it's so disrespectful and it so shows a lack of understanding. And what gets me a lot of the time is that you can talk even to, you know, people in the primary sector and they still don't really fully understand what happens in the, the classroom at the end of the corridor, um, you know, where, where the little people are. And I think this year we saw for the first time a cohesive rebound effect where the sector pulled together and said, you know what, let's take charge ourselves. 
And for some people that was, you know, very pro the changes, some people negative, but what was really nice to see was that it was EYFS people having that discussion and not people who weren't part of that sector. And that's not me saying they shouldn't be part of it at all, but it was just nice to see that the EYFS sector took the lead on that, I think. And, um, Hopefully, yeah, we'll see what happens in the next year. But I, I like the fact they're fighting back. And we've run a lot of features around that and about how early intervention isn't actually the cure-all people think it is. Uh, we've had a few chats with Ed Vanker on this. You know, He sets up some really nice interventions at Reach Academy Felton for, for the youngest children in the education system. But he's under no illusion that, that if you don't sustain that across the school years, it doesn't continue. So we just wanted this year to give the earliest teachers a big shout out and say, we're really glad to be hearing your voice and, and we want to hear it more in, in, in debates. No, it's, it's a really important part of the sector. And I think it's one that's much overlooked. And, you know, we talk about working on the transitions between primary and secondary. We haven't even got EYFS up to primary right yet. And there's so much more work and it's, and it's really bloody interesting. That <laughs> what to five it's such an exciting time of a child's development. And, you know, perhaps historically, if we were to look at it at a distance and say, maybe the reason why we've overlooked this is because it's always been seen as like a woman's job. And that's what mothers do, the naught to five and dismissed it a little bit, but it seems like that's really, really is changing. And we're thinking about it differently. We're talking about it differently and we're finding out more things and that can only be more promising for 2021. I think it helps as well that you've got, Mark enters one of our writers and someone said to him on, on Twitter once, said, oh, how would this work in EYFS? And he said, I've got no idea. <laughs> I just thought, fair play to you, Mark. Like he didn't, you know, he didn't try and put his own views on. He just said, well, I've never, I've never taught him there. So I have no idea. And I think more of that is going to be helpful. More of people saying, do you know what? This has really worked with 11 year olds, but you know, I'd be interested to see how it works with four year olds, not this will definitely work with four year olds. It, it's that sort of, I think sharing of best practices across the phases is absolutely integral to, to really good teaching practice, but it's how you go about it and how that conversation happens. Um, I bet you get fed up, Amy, about people telling you what to do. You strike me as someone who, who would not enjoy uh, being dictated to. Yeah, absolutely not. I have absolutely zero time for being told what to do. Just don't tell my line manager that. <laughs> yeah, he's not listening or she's not listening, okay. hopefully. <laughs> I'll make sure he's not. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, there's plenty more to read in the magazine about uh, our people of the year. There's some really good entries, and 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 it's worth celebrating them all. But it's also worth going back to to the core of this, and which is to to thank teachers from the past year and to you know hope for a more positive 2021 in both how their working conditions evolve, how the public viewpoint of them evolves as well. And, um, hopefully can make a difference there. That's what we're going to try and do. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.